everybody welcome to campaign hq uh, we're now into april we have a wisconsin primary unless overnight it's been canceled that's going to happen next tuesday with a lot of people voting by mail but still some intention to do some limited early voting but other than that that could be the last contest until june and i think uh, where we are is obviously politics is taking a back seat to the pandemic I'll talk about politics first and, and then a few thoughts on the pandemic. So first of all, this is an enormous opportunity for Joe Biden now to build the kind of general election from you know digital talent and strategy to uh, planning your state-based operations, um, really thinking through the battleground states you're going to target and your pathway to, to winning them, you know, thinking through, uh, obviously, um, the vice presidential selection process and some thoughts about timing there. Uh, you know, my assumption is we're going to have to look as a party at moving the convention from July till August to give you the best opportunity to have an in-person convention. So you either do it in August as the Republicans will, or you're going to have to do a virtual convention. So this is an opportunity for them to really, without taking a tremendous amount of incoming directly from the Trump campaign, which in normal circumstances, they would be having to build a general election campaign while Trump's trying to decapitate them. They've got an opportunity here to really build what we need. And, you know, part of that will be asking all of us, um, you know, whether you live in a battleground state or not, um, to get involved. And, and as I said last week, I hope we see that from the Biden campaign uh, very soon. Our guest today on the podcast is going to speak about some ideas about what the average person can do during this pandemic to both organize themselves and begin to organize, uh, particularly online. So, uh, Will, I think it's good to see Joe Biden uh, is putting out good content every day. I think they've put out some really great video content. He's doing more interviews. But I do think they need to view both this period and really the whole general election as uh, just a content production operation and to really make sure they are thinking uh, social media first. And, you know, uh, as we've talked previously, each of those platforms uh, is distinct in some ways. Our guest today is, is going to speak about that as well. You know, then I think, you know, we don't need uh, new reasons why Donald Trump can't serve a second term, the horror that would bring our planet, our world and our country. But, you know, we're reminded every day as we're living through this pandemic, uh, we just cannot trust this person to go anywhere near a crisis ever again. So, um, you know, we're looking at a death toll now. Best case scenario, they're saying 100,000 could go to 250. Others suggesting it could go higher than that. Just unbelievably tragic numbers. Uh, we're clearly going to have an economic catastrophe, the likes of which we may not have seen from an unemployment level since the Great Depression. And Trump, I think, is irresponsibly suggesting that we're going to snap right out of it. As soon as we get the all clear sign, everything's going to come back. And the truth is, many of these businesses aren't going to reopen. Many workers aren't going to get rehired, certainly in the same job they had before. Uh, and certain sectors of our economy are going to take years and years and years to recover. So uh, if any of us needed more motivation, it's enraging, really, to see uh, how Trump has dealt with this, uh, his narcissism and his desire to be seen in the best light at all times uh, caused him to mismanage uh, this crisis, to underplay this crisis, uh, repeatedly tell us it wasn't as bad as it was going to be. And, you know, these are not arguments. These are facts. You look at 
the way South Korea handled this, um, completely different in terms of their trajectory, both in terms of health and economically. Obviously, every country is going to be touched by the economic aspects of this because we're global. But, you know, Trump, um, if there was a guidebook for how to handle a pandemic, um, he basically violated every rule in it. And that's where we find ourselves today with him finally uh, being honest about the toll. It, it drives me crazy that some in the press are giving him credit for a new tone. This is a scandal. This is going to be one of the worst periods in American history in terms of what our leadership has done to us, to people who are going to die, to people who are going to lose their businesses, lose their jobs, lose their homes, lose their future. And while Trump can't be blamed for the pandemic, he bears responsibility for how he managed it and how he mismanaged it. And it just makes me really sad as an American citizen that we are going to get the worst of this when we didn't have to, if he had been more on top of this, more honest about this, more focused on our lives than his political life. Uh, and I do think that, you know, Joe Biden has been out there in interviews talking about um, what Trump did wrong and, and what he would do right now. And I think that's important. I hope he and other Democrats uh, continue uh, to do that. But I do think increasingly voters, particularly if we come out of this, and we may not, but if there is a moment a month or two from now where things have settled down and we can begin to slowly resume life, what's going to be clear uh, is that the digging out economically is going to take years and years and years. So whether it's Joe Biden's first term or Donald Trump's second term, it's going to be defined almost entirely by the decisions you make to try and get the economy on stronger footing. And I think people are going to be very focused, obviously, on what happens if the pandemic comes back whether it's COVID-19 or a new pandemic uh, over the next few years. And I think voters are going to be rightly looking for their next president to have a really concrete plan of action to make sure we're better prepared. So if any of us needed motivation uh, to work harder to make sure Donald Trump leaves, we've been given it each and every day. And we just uh, literally may not survive a second Trump term. Um, and so we all need to do all we can to prevent that. My guest today Stefan Smith was most recently the online engagement director for Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, really did a lot of great innovative work. One of the reasons that Mayor Pete went from somebody who nobody knew uh, to a threat to be the Democratic nominee, winning Iowa, coming second in New Hampshire, uh, was just really innovative digital work. So I'm excited to talk to Stefan about that. Uh, you know, he previously uh, was involved in Hillary Clinton's campaign and was actually uh, an academic before that, studying at USC uh, before getting involved in politics. So he comes at this with rich experience, both from an academic standpoint and from a practitioner in the field. And I think will give us some really good thoughts on what you as individuals can do now during the pandemic, the types of things uh, you can do later in the campaign, whether we go back to normal and we're doing door knocking and, and a lot of phone calling or whether it's a virtual election. In either case, some great ideas and also great ideas about what both Joe Biden and other Democratic campaigns in 2020 and our party generally, you know, how we need to approach these spaces, where we're not invested enough, where we need better tools and technology. And I think you're just going to learn a lot from him in terms of how you you know, go about organizing in your everyday life, doing the types of relational organizing that have become so important in politics. Uh, but I think Stefan is also going to really teach us about these different platforms, and they all are very different, and some best practices for each of them. So I think this is a conversation um, you'll really enjoy. It's really important. Hopefully many of you are beginning to think about, if not doing, more online to help uh, us have a good November, um, but also uh, really some thoughts about how we need to really 
uh, build these campaigns this year to take full advantage of the digital spaces, which are the main spaces now where we transact our politics. We have to have a digital first approach. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Stefan. I'm very excited to have Stefan Smith on the podcast this week. Stefan, thank you for joining us. Of course. All right. So I've told everybody about your illustrious background. So your authority and expertness on these issues is uh, credentialed. But I'd start here. So um, obviously, we have first responders who are working around the clock in such heroic fashion. We've got small business owners trying to keep their businesses afloat. Um, We've got parents who are homeschooling or helping supervise their kids' academics. A lot of people are really busy, but there's also people who maybe have a little bit more time at home because they're not commuting to and forth a job. Maybe they've been laid off, sadly, and they're interested in doing something to make sure Donald Trump doesn't serve a second term. What are some things you would advise people to do now, and where could they find the resources they need to be productive and reach voters? Right, of course. I think it really has to start with the circle they're already talking to Mm -hmm. and the people who are already in their network. The impulse right now when the world is on fire is to grab the biggest water hose you can and just try and put it out. But we're going to need help to do that. We're going to need capacity to do that. The thing I always keep coming back to is about four weeks ago, there was a person in pretty much everybody's group chat who was very up to date on Corona and was very up to date on this is what you should be doing. Here's what the rules are. Here's what lockdown looks like. We should take this seriously. Every group chat in America had that person. We need to make sure that person is also pushing, for instance, the census just came out. Mm-hmm. Now's the perfect time to start get, making sure your friends do the census. That's a really sort of apolitical, low-level way to start organizing your friends and family, right? So that's one. Two, start thinking about what races or causes do you want to get involved with and could bring your friends with, with you. There are a lot of down-ballot candidates who are struggling right now. They built plans around the idea of huge field presences. They were hoping to start kicking off phone banks. There are people who, for instance, in Massachusetts, who still have to collect signatures somehow to get on the ballot, right? So figuring out what races are local that you and your friends can get involved with, local politics tends to be a little less partisan than national politics. It's easier to bring your friends along with you, right? So that might be a really good way to start. There are tons of resources in this space right now and even more about to start coming online. So you have things like Meg Martino, who's the digital organizing director at the DNC. She's just helped roll out a huge suite of new tools. You have Action Network, who just released a bunch of open source software that campaigns can grab and help to sort of lift up what they're doing online, right? You have people like Arena, Arena Summit. You have people like Acronym. You have all across the sort of progressive space. You have campaigning while on Corona. You have Run for Something has a toolkit together. The Tuesday Company has a toolkit together. So there are tons of resources out there. The most important thing, though, is to figure out sort of who you're talking to and get your network ready for action. So let's dig into that a little bit more. So I think you made a great point about the one person in all of our chats or networks who was the expert on Corona and giving us advice. So if somebody listening to this wants to be that person, let's dig in a little bit deeper. So they, first of all, need to make their own plan, I assume, about what they're most interested in, what race is, is it the presidential, is it local, is it all those things? But how do they then 
reach out to people in their network and have the most, what platforms that they use, uh, what tricks of the trade have you found to be most effective in modern day organizing? Right. I think the most important thing and the most valuable thing to remember and to keep in mind when you're doing any sort of organizing is that, and you know this, is that politics is personal for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. The thing I keep coming back to when I'm consulting on campaigns or, or helping on the Pete Buttigieg campaign, which just ended, is how do we create intimacy at a distance, right? Um, and what I mean by that is you've knocked on doors. You know this, that when you're on someone's front porch and you're having a conversation with them about voter reg, or you're having a conversation with them about uh, supporting your candidate or not voting third party or <laughs> whatever you're talking to them about, like that's an intimate sometimes conversation. You're sort of coming into their space and asking if you can have this conversation and there's power in that. We need to figure out how to replicate that online. How do we create intimacy at a distance? And I think if you're thinking about how you, an individual, regular person at home, can start doing that, you start with the relationships that are already intimate. And which platforms are you already like performing that intimacy on? So for instance, if you have a professional Twitter, right, and your Twitter tone of voice and your audience is not built around this sort of organizing, that's probably not going to be a successful platform for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're a little bit older, or for some reason, you've kept your Facebook profile active, and that's a better network, it's got longer words you can use. There's no word count. Ostensibly, everyone there who would see a post is your friend, right? Facebook may be an interesting way to do it. I'm curious about seeing people taking this organizing model um, of sort of relational online intimacy into different spaces. So for instance, the thing I was looking at is the Obama campaign. I don't know if you know this. The Obama campaign in 07 uh, held organizing events in a video game called Second Life. Yeah. Did you know this? Yeah, I do. Back in the day, man. Yeah. <laughs> Way back in the day. There's no reason you can't be doing online organizing right now in a game of Fortnite mm-hmm. or in Animal Crossing or in, uh, in World of Warcraft, right? Uh, everybody, everywhere you go is buying a Nintendo Switch if they can't afford it, if they're lucky enough. Um, with a Nintendo Switch or an Xbox or a PlayStation, that's a huge number of people who are in the gaming world that you can go and try and organize, right? It's new, it's interesting, it's different. This is only going to work if campaigns and people go sort of meet voters where they are and meet supporters and volunteers where they are. And, and because the internet is sort of like the state of television at this point, nobody's watching the same thing, nobody's on the same platform, we're all segmented and broken apart, that means you're going to have to go into super niche communities that in a traditional campaign or a traditional year, you could afford to overlook. Right. So I think I would start there. Think about the spaces where you're already personal. Think about spaces where there are people there who may be receptive to your message and then just go and do it. Like it's, it's the same thing we tell people before their first phone bank shift or before their first canvas shift. Like, yes, you're nervous, right? It's always nervous, but you got this. Let's go. And then they go and they do it and they come back and they've knocked a packet and they love it. Great, that's great advice. So how about there, let, let's talk about someone who's doing all that, you know, reaching out to friends and family members and making sure they've got their own plan for participation in the general election and, you know, sharing content, you know, that, you know, they might find persuasive. 
But there are people who are like, listen, I live in California, I live in Alabama, I live in Massachusetts, and I kind of really want to be calling into battleground states right now, encouraging people to register. We'll get to the Biden campaign's role in that in a minute, but are there tools right now people can utilize if that's an itch they want to scratch? I think it's hard to find those tools, right? I don't Mm -hmm. think there's a central repository. If you're like, I could find them, you could find them. Some of the listeners here could find them, right? But if you're a regular person who lives in California who wants to make calls, it's hard to know who to get in touch with and who to reach out to and how to start that process. Right. I do want to say that we're thinking, we're thinking in terms of door knocking and we're thinking in terms of phone calls, right? Like phone calls was the example you just used, right? We need to be prepared for the idea that voter contact in this age is probably not sort of phone calls probably aren't the best thing to use. Auto dialers only call home phones. We know that's not reaching huge swaths of the young voters, huge swaths of like minority and people of color. So we're trying to think, if you look at, even though Twitter, the axiom is Twitter is not real life, right? But we know from ratings that African-Americans use Twitter at disproportionately higher rates than their white counterparts, right? There's spaces online where you can actually make a much better, more targeted intervention than sort of cold calling. And it's about figuring out then how do we build the systems and structures and what does that intervention look like? And how do we make sure people can easily onboard that and do it from remotely? Right. You know, I think a good campaign tries to reach everybody every way they can, right? Some of it's advertising online, TV, radio, door knocking, social media, as you just mentioned, relational organizing, phone calls. But if we're in a situation, um, let's say, deep into the summer, and, you know, God forbid, we're still in pandemic uh, in the fall, either because it hasn't receded or it comes back, and door knocking's out as an organizing tool, which may mean most people, if not all people, are voting by mail. As you said, phone calls have limitation. So if this is an all or mostly all digital campaign, folks can write postcards, obviously. How would you account for that if you are a campaign, whether it's Joe Biden's campaign manager or someone running for Congress or state Senate? I mean, I can tell you what we did on Pete's campaign, right? So we were obviously Pete mm-hmm. ended his campaign before the sort of pandemic that declaration was made, but we were already doing the online work because we didn't have capacity. If you look at sort of our payroll versus Bernie Sanders, they had twice as many people on payroll than us. Elizabeth Warren had way more people paid staff in Super Tuesday states than we did, right? We knew we had to go online and harness their skills and talents. And so when I was made online engagement director, that's what I did, right? So that started with really building out a digital army. Um, My digital captains program was (laughs) the sort of best thing I loved about the campaign because it was direct contact with supporters. Supporters are the backbone of every single campaign. So what we did with digital captains is we sort of, hey, if you want to help us out online, here are six different teams you can join. We had a, a volunteer data team. We had a volunteer content team. We had a volunteer rapid response team. We had a volunteer state and local team. Uh, we were about to launch our fundraising team uh, when the campaign ended. Um, but the most important team we had was a welcome team, whose entire job was to find people online who might support Pete and give them what we call the digital hug. And that was somebody tweeting out, I really loved Pete's answer on the debate. I'm thinking about voting for him. I'm sure you've been online and you've seen the Pete supporters are the most enthusiastic, enthusiastic people online. Yeah. They would find that person and they would like, it would get flagged by the welcome team and the welcome team would say, Hey, I think we've got somebody. And they would go 
and sort of comment underneath that person's tweet. Thank you so much. Have you been to the website? Have you read his policy on this? Oh, maybe you should donate. Do you want to know who your local organizer is? Here's their at so you can DM them, right? It became this sort of mm-hmm. online onboarding process for people who we called Pete Curious, right? Pete had no name recognition. You've got to build that up through conversation, but it's also about, in my mind, making it as easy as possible for people who are considering your candidate to get in touch and to feel valued. So that was what we did sort of writ large with the digital captains program. One thing we also did was we did digital door knocking. You're talking about sort of what can we do in the fall if God forbid um, this continues on or it, it, it flares back up in the fall um, and we're not able to do traditional canvas and we're not able to make that pivot. My digital uh, door knocking program was basically invented by the volunteers, which was amazing. The volunteer data team, which was headed up by a volunteer PhD student, um, <laughs> they found a way to basically get us all the followers from the Pete for America Twitter account. And then the entire digital captains program went through that spreadsheet and manually sorted and gave everyone a score on a one to five based on what they were tweeting. This person retweets a lot of Pete stuff. This person's kind of ambivalent on Pete. We think this person is a reporter, right? We then segmented those lists by Super Tuesday State and gave them to our on-the-ground volunteers. Hey, here are some digital leads for you. Go DM them. And we just slid into people's DMs before (laughs) Super Tuesday asking if they needed any help voting. If you have anything, hey, your deadline's coming up. Hey, do you know where your polling place is? Hey, I'm a volunteer. I'm a digital captain for Pete for America. If you have any questions, I'm here. Just DM. It's putting the campaign as close to people as humanly possible. That's fascinating. And would you also use some of those people you try to recruit to also be digital volunteers? Yes. Off of the social media intelligence? Yeah, that's really smart. So let me ask you, Stefan. So um, we focus a lot on this podcast on the presidential campaign. So while Joe Biden is not our formal nominee, he's our, uh, I would argue, presumptive nominee. And clearly they're uh, beginning to focus a lot more on the general election. And so what types of things, let's say just over the next 60 days, would you uh, recommend they be doing you know, because again, there's millions and millions of people out there. And to your point, they can help on local races, the census, all good thoughts. But there are a lot of people who really want to apply time to the presidential. What types of communication should they be doing? I mean, is it simply, hey, you you know, you need to make your own personal plan. You need to reach out to your friends and family, the relational organizing. Are we asking, should they be asking people to do more digital organizing like you talked about? What are the types of things they should do? Because I agree with you. One of the frustrations that an average volunteer has is, where do I go? And, you know, we tried, not perfectly, but in the Obama campaigns, to be that answer. Like, if you wanted to do anything, you wanted to travel to a battleground state, you wanted to contribute, you wanted to create content, you wanted to share content, we wanted to be uh, as much as possible one-stop shopping place for you. So what types of things would you hope we see from them over the next 60 days, let's say? Well, I first want to shout out what they've done, right? So they've made that pivot. Mm-hmm. I think as cleanly as could be expected, considering the rapidity of what happened. You know, they were in a fight to win it, and then South Carolina happened, and then Pete Buttigieg led the, the cascade, and suddenly, I think I agree with you, presumptive nominee here, right? He's just launched a podcast. I think that's fantastic. They've built him 
uh, a studio. He's on television more. I think that's fantastic. I'm seeing a brand new digital ad from them pretty much every single day, taking Trump's press conferences, using them in digital ads that maybe don't have a super long shelf life, but get your supporters riled up and prove to your supporters that you're ready for this fight. One of the most important things you can do to your online supporters is sort of signal to them that you're in the trenches with them. You're fighting with them. Mm -hmm. You're on their side. And I think the Joe Biden campaign is doing a huge part of that. They've sent out SMS blasts that are uh, recruiting digital ideas. They're crowdsourcing and asking their supporters, you know, what do you need to be successful? I think any sort of new era that we're in requires data. And so them asking, what do you need to be successful as a Joe Biden supporter online? I think that's key. And so they're doing a lot that I think is going to pay dividends over the next 60 days. What I would love to see them do is, one, it doesn't have to always be Joe Biden. I think one thing we did on Pete's campaign is, as hokey as it sounds, is use staff as characters. And we saw this in the Trump campaign in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. We all know who, and this is an old phenomenon, you know, this is George Stephanopoulos in the 90s, right? We know the kitchen cabinet, the, the sort of people the pres that hangs out around presidents and presidential candidates. Um, but people like Nina Smith, our traveling press secretary, Roderica Applewaite, um, Jose Morales, our constituency director, there are people on this campaign who in another environment would be told to sort of, you know, hide a little bit, you know, staffers aren't the story. On this campaign, we were allowed to sort of be ourselves and build our own followings and then use that to sort of evangelize for Pete. So before Pete dropped out, we were as staffers about to have a Twitch live stream fundraiser where we played Mario Kart and raised money for the campaign. Because we had been allowed to build those audiences, we could now tap that audience <laughs> for money. So I think one is realizing you've got to build a bigger digital ecosystem, right? Um, all roads have to lead to the vice president, right? But all roads don't have to be the vice president, if that makes sense. So I think that's one. I think two, a willingness to take more chances yeah. and go more places. We talked earlier about, uh, you know, maybe having a digital <laughs> town hall inside World of Warcraft or uh, Animal Crossing or, <laughs> or one of the video games, right? But right. there's even lower hanging fruit than that, right? Um, if you think of a platform that millions of people are on, Millions of college-educated women are on, but there are no candidates. It's Pinterest. There are more people are at home right now. I'm, the number of times someone has gone Instagram Live so that I can watch them bake banana bread, it's insane. And I watch it every time. But the point is, is that more people being at home, <laughs> I, you can't right. help yourself. Uh, I do think more people at home means um, there's more people who are redecorating who are fidgety, who are looking for art projects for their kids to keep them occupied, who are looking for recipes to cook out of pantry staples, who are, who are looking for something that you probably wouldn't think of as overtly political, right? But to go back to what I said at the top, it's about intimacy at a distance. If you make the same recipes, right? We saw Kamala Harris making, uh, sort of turning her campaign content studio essentially into a kitchen, uh, in the last few weeks of her campaign, cooking recipes and talking and creating that content. Right. I thought that was brilliant because what that does is create what sociologists call a parasocial relationship between the person and the consumer. It's intimacy at a distance. I feel as if I know you a little bit better if I know that you keep your spices in coffee containers, right? Um, nobody's on Pinterest right now. So it's, it's just going more places 
creating more content and creating more ways. I think you talked about it a little bit, sort of how can Joe Biden's campaign become the hub, right? And if you're not sure how to get involved, you go to JoeBiden.com first, right? That should be hopefully the game plan, right? Because if there's a lot of people, we learn this in crises, right? It's sort of, um, sort of a bomb effect. It contracts and then it goes outward. We first are shocked into ourselves in a crisis. We, we stop making new connections. We sort of retreat into ourselves. And then, amazingly, most humans reach out and then want to help. And they want to do good. And so there's tons, millions of people at home right now who are looking to do good. We just got to tell them where to go. And I think Joe Biden has an amazing opportunity right now to be the person who tells them where to go. And sometimes that's going to be political. Come watch this town hall, watch this live stream, share this video. But sometimes Mm -hmm. it's not going to be. It's going to be this small business is looking for clients. If you need it, order online. Right. That would be amazing. Lifting up the supporters or the the first responders uh, on the ground who are doing the work and helping them tell their story. Right. Like we are in the middle of a pandemic. It is a campaign, obviously, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. And the thing I keep coming back to is people will remember when this is all over with who helped them and who didn't. And I think what Joe Biden should be thinking about alongside the online engagement stuff is how can we build an ecosystem that helps as many people in this crisis as possible by giving them information, by pushing back against the president, by organizing in their communities, um, so that when this is over, they're ready to get to work. Because if God willing, this is over in August, every Democrat's going to have to ramp up their field programs immediately and at the same time. Right. No, I think you make an excellent point there. I think that also makes the initial Biden organization more cohesive, right, and more inspired, but will also attract others. So in terms of the hub, you mentioned, you know, it's a place to come see content, share content. They are doing some crowdsourcing on those ideas. But potentially it also pretty soon should be a place where if somebody's just sitting in a state and wants to know what are tips for relational organizing or what are tips for how to use my own social media platforms, right, they can go there. I mean, you did this uh, very well in, in Mayor Pete's campaign, and I know the Biden campaign you know, has been organizing as well, but it does seem to be, uh, I think, imperative that they become a place where content's critical, obviously, but also a place where folks can get organizing ideas, right? And ideas for, you know, if we are able to travel in the fall, which battleground states people should go to, right? That sort of thing. Let me ask you a question on, on digital captains. So your digital captains, particularly in states where you did have deep on-the-ground organizing, so let's, you know, the first four early states where you also had traditional precinct captains, what is the relationship between the two of them? Um, are some are in some cases it's the same person. Talk a little bit about that. Right. I mean, what's, what was great about my program is my program was very forward looking. The best thing we did and the thing that impacted the early states the most was building call capacity for Iowa. Mm-hmm. We knew that to win Iowa, we were going to have to talk to every voter we could. And we knew that was going to require more than our in-state capacity, even though we did have a very robust field program on the ground. Right. Thanks to Greta Carnes, our organizing director. Um, and so how do we then augment that? Most of the digital captains, like sort of we've mentioned earlier, are not in competitive states mm-hmm. or they're in states where we weren't expected to do amazing and they wanted to have a bigger impact or states, you know, in districts where we were expecting to do very well, um, later on. So how do we get them involved and engaged? And that was by giving them very clear targets 
and then letting them figure out how to recruit and build for it. So for instance, we needed, I'll never forget, I came into the office um, a week before the Iowa caucus and uh, the marathon state and organizing director were talking numbers over the phone. They got off the phone and they told me we need 600 out of state volunteer shifts in the next three days. What's wonderful is each of my digital captain verticals, all six of them had an elected team leader. We spoke every morning on a conference call here, what the needs are of the campaign. Here's what we're looking for. Here's how you can help. And then they could organize themselves. I immediately went to the digital captain. Hey, we need volunteer shifts. We need call shifts specifically into Iowa. Here's the mobilize link. Like, let me know what you need. And what they did was they built a grassroots campaign that day and we had the shifts we needed less than 48 hours later. Because what they did was, okay, let's make content. All right, let's make people record videos of themselves doing phone calls to out-of-state to prove it's not hard. Okay, let's everybody try and recruit three friends or family. Like, if you do, you get a special badge, right? Um, putting an incentive, gamifying the process, letting it be volunteer-led, I think was key. I think what campaigns, especially campaigns I had been on before Pete, what they've done is they've taken a very, very top-down structure to their volunteers, where they assume that, okay, you just go out there, you hit these numbers, do what I say, and you're done, right? That doesn't work in online organizing, right? It just, it just doesn't. Um, instead, you have to invite people to be a part of the solution. And so I remember coming in two days later, we were obviously constantly tracking call shifts, as you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know how that pressure is right before Iowa. Um, and then we hit it. And then we exceeded it by several hundred. And so... Uh, it was, it was this amazing feeling, and they got to feel that because they did it. It made them bond even more with the campaign and made them want to do more. They, we asked them for something. They delivered it. They saw their work, and then we won the Iowa caucus like seven times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time there was a recount, you guys were still on top. So I'm curious. Um, I think folks might be interested in Stefan. And when you look at all the different platforms, everything from TikTok, which is, you know, pure organic, no advertising. You mentioned Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, video games. Talk a little bit about, you know, their distinction. Like, I know there's, there's commonality across them in terms of approach, but what is distinctive about them uh, in terms of, you know, the way you can best utilize them to, to organize? Right. I think... I think, like you said, there's a distinction to be made between purely organic platforms and organic platforms that have a paid component, right? Um, I think that's a huge difference. Like, you know, TikTok is going to be completely different. Um, but in terms of platform by platform, I think, I think Facebook is obviously as much as sort of there are certain segments of the public who believe that because they don't use Facebook, nobody does. Facebook is still how huge numbers of people in this country, including members of my family back home in South Carolina, uh, consume the world and see, and see what's happening. And so for me, Facebook is still a platform that I think people, I think it deserves way more attention than it receives. I wish Facebook on campaigns received as much attention as Twitter um, <laughs> in terms of uh, eyeballs on it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one. I think Facebook has to be key because it's personal because it's essentially the yellow pages of the 21st century. Everybody's in the phone book. Everyone's in Facebook. Um, so I think that's a really good start, especially if you're not a national campaign. If you're a local campaign looking to organize in your community, it's, you want the lowest tech solution, and Facebook offers a lot of that. I think Twitter organizing is different, 
we know the Twitter audience is more educated. We know the Twitter audience is more diverse. We know the Twitter audience is uh, makes a, more than the median income for America. We know the Twitter audience is not representative, right? But we do know that the Twitter audience can shape narratives on other platforms. One of the most interesting things I learned on this campaign is that it took about two and a half, three days for a bad day on Twitter to translate to Facebook. You could see it happen in real time. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen, where you could see an attack on Pete sort of bubbling up on Twitter, have a full-blown Twitter moment, and then you would still see the reverberations of it on Facebook about two days later. And, and it got to be really so predictive that we just started, as soon as we saw the Twitter mob forming with their torches, it was, all right, let's put a wall around Facebook. How do we counter-program? and get them ready. Right. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So Twitter is amazing as a canary in the coal mine. And Twitter is amazing if you're trying to influence the narrative, right? Um, one of the things Liz Smith and her comms team on our campaign was very big on is uh, every tweet is a press release, right? Um, so it's very easy on that platform um, to sort of make yourself look bigger than you maybe actually are or to make your organizing be seen by more people publicly, especially the sort of right blue check mark people who sometimes <laughs> drive conversation on that platform. Um, and it's a great canary in the coal mine to figure out what's going to happen and leech over to other platforms. I think I look at Instagram. Instagram's really interesting to me because the sociological research around Instagram as a platform is that users of that platform do not go there to be um, – to be sort of made to feel bad about themselves. It is an aspirational platform. Instagram is a platform of more positivity than negativity. Unlike Twitter, for instance, where negativity is the overall, overall um, tone. Instagram is way, way more positive. So the way you would organize on Instagram is I would never do doom and gloom on Instagram. You never do the sky is falling on Instagram, right? Instead, you talk about the world that could be if that person would join. If you come in and let's, you know what, let's hang out together on an Instagram live, bake some banana bread, and then let's fill out our census together, right? As sort of one of those platforms. Snapchat, which I know a lot of older millennials have given up on, Snapchat is amazing, and we used it a lot, a lot on this campaign because it's a fantastic mobilizing tool. Snapchat helped register hundreds of thousands of voters in the 2018 election. When you turn 18 on Snapchat, you are reminded to vote. You get a little alert, like register to vote. Um, the Snapchat audience is fantastic, and they're very much devoted to that platform, and they do skew younger. So if you're organizing on a college campus, for instance, or if you're a younger person, if you're a teenager or someone in their early 20s looking to get involved and get um, your friends on board, Snapchat might be something to look at. You're not going to raise money on Snapchat, but you can organize on Snapchat really effectively. Um, and then you have platforms like Pinterest, which nobody's touching. I would use Pinterest the same way I'd use Instagram. That's sort of a lifestyle space. That's a space to, here's how you decorate an office whenever we are allowed to have offices again, <laughs> right? Right, here's, right. You, you use that space, again, as an aspirational platform of what could be. There's a huge culture on Pinterest of sharing quotes right? I could see a world of sort of Joe Biden memes and, and quotes and just like really positive spaces in pin boards on that platform that people share and move around and then can use as a repository to find content later. So the platforms themselves have unique advantages. The most important thing is to pick one 
that's in line with what your candidate's able and willing to do and commit to it. Um, the best thing about the Pete Buttigieg campaign, of course, and his sort of tagline was you go everywhere. You talk to everyone, right? Um, you do every interview. And that was true on platforms. Um, we, we really did go hard every single place on the internet we possibly could. That's a really helpful overview and tutorial. Uh, and how about YouTube? I want to talk about YouTube so badly because I think the worst thing that Democrats have done is abandon that platform to the right wing fringes. It is one of the bigger failings of the Democratic Party is our lack of investment in that platform. That is not only the number one video search engine in the country, it is the what number two or number three most visited site. More people spend more hours uh, watching YouTube videos than spend watching network television. Right. And you see candidates like Bernie Sanders heavily invest in terms of live streaming their events. Right. But you should be thinking bigger. There's no reason um, campaigns, candidates, advocacy groups can't harness the power of YouTube to essentially, if we're all going to be quarantined and have home studios anyway, and we're all on Zoom conference calls, essentially to be creating original programmable content. Right. Where. It could be something completely simple. It can be the candidate reading children's stories so that they're, you know, <laughs> so, they're, so that you can play it to your kids. Um, it could be something simple as a, a daily press briefing, but it's uploaded every day and it's done digitally and you can watch it on YouTube, right? It can be um, a day in the life series. This was something we were working hard on uh, for Pete's campaign for uh, if we made it to the general was the idea of launching a series of YouTube videos, one day in the life of an organizer, day in the life of a nurse, day in the life, just these people that, especially with Corona, you can now do day in the lives that are really, really interesting of first responders, right? To sort of break down the walls and talk about how your policies would help real people. There's a burgeoning movement right now on YouTube, and I'm thinking of people like Natalie Wynn, our ContraPoints, I'm thinking about H. Bomber Guy, I'm thinking about uh, Ali, who does his philosophy tube, uh, Carlos Maza, who used to be at Vox, has just launched his YouTube channel. The left tube, or bread tube as it's called, is about to start flourishing. It is a huge movement. It would behoove everyone on the Democratic side to think about how they can insert themselves into that conversation. The younger generation is not watching your TV ads. They're not watching, they're not seeing it. They're either seeing it because it blew up on Twitter, which is how I see a lot of ads, or they're seeing it as pre-roll before YouTube videos. Right. This is such an excellent point. I'm, I hope everyone out there races from, you know, city council to president are listening to you on this. What is the right doing on YouTube that you think is effective? Is it more that we've just abandoned it too much? Or are they also innovating there? What do you see there that gives you pause? What gives me pause is the way they've empowered their audience to create their own content. They've got entire ecosystems set up, and I'm not talking about sort of Ben Shapiro, right? Like everyone knows, fine. <laughs> I'm thinking about sort of low-level content creators who maybe are only reaching 15,000 people with a video, right? But they're loyal video followers. They're, there's just more content being created in that space that is right or right-wing or alt-right, to be completely honest. Um, and Democrats are just not competing at the same level or scale. And I think part of that is we need to get our supporters to create their own content. There's a, we talked uh, earlier about sort of what can Joe Biden do. Joe Biden needs to be thinking about content, right? He needs to be thinking about yeah. how do you create 
content around his campaign, his policies, and what he would do as president that is seen by more people. Rihanna, I mean, I don't know if this is the first time Rihanna's been mentioned on your podcast, but Rihanna, just <laughs> her Fenty Beauty line, um, just bought a house in California and stocked it full of TikTokers and other content creators who are using her products. Do whatever you want, just use our products and make content. There's no reason you couldn't set up a sort of collage of content creators around the country, help them, give them the stuff they need, give them access to materials that they may need to create content, and then let them go and create content around Joe Biden. Right. And sort of, that's just a new model. It's a way of, as you know, campaigns like to control the world. Campaigns, campaigns really like control. There's a, a wonderful academic, his name is uh, Thomas Ballard, who wrote an article on citizen typography and participatory aesthetics. And what he says is, when you create content online, you're creating the space for a conversation where people who see it can come and remix it and add to it and, and take it further than you could probably even imagine. And that participatory aspect of it makes it their own. And they're more likely, to, because of that ownership, they're more likely to vote for you. They're more likely to get involved with you. They're more likely to support your cause because they feel a sense of ownership. And we saw that on Pete's campaign when we release the design toolkit, you, here's all our hex codes. Here's mm -hmm. all our branding. Here's everything yeah. you need to know. Go forth and make it. And they made their own banners to march in parades that we never could have afforded at the very beginning to mail literature. And they were just printing it up themselves in the brand. If you give people the tools to create and when you put content out there, it creates a space for collaboration. What we should be thinking about is, there's no, there's no campaign that can scale up enough to create enough content to feed the content beast, right? That's just not practical. Instead, we should be thinking about volunteer opportunities for content creators and how to harness their talent to put Joe's message everywhere. Does that make sense? It does. Well, first of all, I think he is tailor-made if they embrace it for memes and GIFs and, you know, just the aviators and, oh, yeah. you know, even the gaffes. Just have fun with it, right? I, I agree with that. But to your point, it helps you both with scale. But, you know, what I've learned in politics is whenever you're asking for help from the outside, you're always going to get better ideas than, you know, you were able to do inside the tent. And you just got to be open. Like when I used to write political ads a long time ago uh, for television, right? Dinosaur times. You know, the best lines would always come from just the interviews with voters, right? They'd put things in a way that, you know, I could spend three hours or three days locked up somewhere and I wouldn't, uh, you know, come up with that great turn of a phrase like they would. So I think that's brilliant. We got to turn them loose. I'm curious. So when you look at 2016, when you were helping Hillary Clinton to 2020, both in terms of uh, the leadership, you know, uh, you were providing to Mayor Pete's campaign, and now as you look at the general, have there been fundamental shifts in online engagement and organizing? And if so, where are they most intense? I think of people like Greta Carnes, who really helped innovate and reinvigorate peer-to-peer -peer texting in Virginia in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, she's one of the unsung heroes of the Democratic Party. Um, her work there, I think of Alexis, who was digital director for uh, the Arizona Democratic Party. Her peer-to-peer -peer program reached thousands of people in largely rural Arizona and gave them a way to stay connected that wasn't traditional door knocks or phone calls, right? Um, the end of, like, I think Pete Buttigieg had the best content of any candidate by creating content that our audience wanted. We did an entire series of puns. They wanted more videos of the dogs. We gave them videos of the dogs. They wanted... 
Um, <laughs> they wanted to see Pete with a beard, and now Pete has a beard, even though the campaign is over. Um, hashtag beard edge edge. And so, like, th- th- in terms of innovation, I think the content innovations for Pete Buttigieg's campaign is going to lean forward. I think the digital captain stuff we did from Pete Buttigieg is, is probably going to end up itself integrated in a lot of field programs, especially digital door knocking. I think peer-to-peer texting and SMS programs in general are due for an overhaul. Um, we talked a little bit about um, how do you build intimacy at a distance and how do you create relationships. To me, you know this as well as anybody else, most text messages are opened within seven minutes of them being received. Something like 90-plus percent of text messages are opened in the first few minutes. Um, that in every major campaign, even down to house districts, have some version of an SMS program where they're sort of sending blast text messages and raising money. Now is the perfect time to take that tool and make it more personal. It should be texts from your congressman. It should be texts from your candidate saying, hey, here's what I did today. Here's what's up. And be conversational and real and make it almost like you're getting a real text from the candidate. Right. There's right. tons of small innovations that can be made. But from the moment of 2016 to here, I don't think we've innovated nearly as much as we could have. And I think what this crisis is sort of teaching the Democrats is that digital needs a bigger seat at the table. And I mean, that sounds incredibly self-serving, of course. Well, no, I think it should have the biggest seat because it's the platform that campaigns are won and lost on these days. So you talked about this a little bit uh, in, in your last answer. You mentioned where you've woefully underinvested in YouTube. So I'm just wondering, both from the seat you run with Mayor Pete and as you look at the general election, what are the either tech... Um, uh, you know, apps, data, where are the gaps? Like, are there things that you think we ought to be able to do that we currently, you mentioned overhauling peer-to-peer texting. Where are the gaps? And I'm curious where you think we might be able to fill them between now and November and where we're just behind, unfortunately, and we're going to have to catch up, you know, in 22-24. And I'm not saying just vis-a-vis the Republicans. I'm just saying, like, what's ideal state? You know, what could make you and people like you most effective? I mean, I think, again, it comes back down to information. Mm-hmm. The most valuable and important thing that you can give to, whether it's a politico, whether it's a, someone who's candidate curious, whether it's somebody who's just getting involved in politics for the first time because this virus has made them insecure in their housing or their employment and they're, they're looking to get involved to change things, right? It's information, knowing where to go. What we need to do and what I think the Democrats are doing with the suite of tools they're slowly rolling out um, is they're trying to position themselves as sort of a hub. What we need to do is, I don't care who the hub is, we need to pick a place and use our combined reach and influence to make sure we're driving people there. What we can't afford to do is make it look complicated. What we can't afford to do is make it look hard because every single thing we know, both from personal experience and the literature, says that if things are harder, if there's a harder political gateway, most people won't walk through it. Right. If it takes them too long to find the information they need to get involved, then they're done. Right. What I'm wondering, uh, sort of post uh, Mayor Pete's campaign, have you had time to look at what the Trump campaign specifically is doing online? And do you have any evaluation of that? Oh, um, <laughs> I mean, here's my thing. I think the Trump campaign is, you know, the campaign you'd run if you were trying to be president of Slytherin Tower and Harry Potter. It's, you know, geofencing and targeting and as much, you know, hoovering up as much data as humanly possible and, and that sort of stuff, right? Um, I don't think the innovation, I don't find the Trump campaign particularly innovative, mm-hmm. right? I don't think their design is good. 
I don't think their content is that good, right? I don't think their tactics are actually that good. I think what they're really, really good at and what's very, very clear is, like you said, Brad has a seat at the table. He has the head of the table. Right. When digital is, is not only represented but empowered in the rooms and spaces where decisions are made, to paraphrase Hamilton, like when digital has a seat at that table and is involved in those conversations, then we're able to see solutions where analog people perhaps couldn't. And Brad sitting in the room, it's very clear that the first lens they're looking at things and issues and problems through is a digital lens. How do we solve this? How do we do this? How do we, the president has drawn on the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association, the Sharpie, let's sell our own Sharpies because we see it's trending. They're able to be fast and quick and nimble on even the smallest things because digital on that campaign is empowered to do so. Um, the big battle, I think, that sort of I live in the legacy and stand on y'all's shoulders for on the Obama campaign is y'all really brought in the idea that you need a digital director. Mm-hmm. That was just, you just, you have to have somebody doing the digital. It, was, it became clear to Democratic candidates. And that was an important fight and an important battle that y'all did for us and other Obama alums and down-ballot candidates did. It normalized that practice. Unfortunately, on a lot of campaigns, the digital director or the digital positions have been ghettoized to a certain section of the campaign. Right. Primarily fundraising. Right. And so what we need to do across all areas as Democrats is reposition digital, not just sort of siloed in its own thing, but head at the, at the head of the table, empowered to participate across an interdisciplinary. One of the things, um, one of the things we did on the Pete campaign that actually did not work uh, amazingly because things were moving so quickly, um, but I think is actually the right move, is we didn't have a digital department. There was no digital director on our campaign. There was no digital department that you were a part of. It started out when I got there, I was the fourth person uh, hired in that department and the 17th person hired overall. When I got there, it was called the experience department. And the job of experience was broadly speaking, how do we input digital in everything we do? You cannot call it digital organizing. Regular organizing has to be digital. It's 2020. How do we build and bake it in from the beginning of everything we do. Eventually, that model, just because of how fast we had to move and scale up, it, it broke down the middle, and we instead ended up with a content department and a distribution department. One side doing uh, the more targeted aspects of email and digital ads, and the other side doing the organic social. And so that, again, worked really well because there was no place you could be siloed. There was no department head you could, you know, not listen to. We were everywhere. And I think that's an interesting model more campaigns need to think about. No, that is the evolution that has to happen, stuff. And I mean, I, you know, Roosevelt and Churchill had radio. Kennedy had TV. Reagan had TV. Obama had the Internet. Now this is about social media, uh, you know, and I think it has to be that has to be at the head of the t- That is the campaign. That's I mean, campaign. that is the campaign. And, and other things need to be secondary. I'm curious. So, you know, the Trump campaign, I don't think they 
they've rolled it out. Maybe they have. I haven't looked at it. But they say they're going to roll out kind of an app that's a one-stop shop for folks. I mean, is that something that we need on our side, whether that's the Biden campaign or the DNC? So, you know, everybody has the Amazon app, and they've got their Uber or Lyft app, and they've got their Instagram app. Do we need an app where people, whether it's sharing content, you know, posting your own content, signing up to volunteer? Like, to your point about using, I think you made a really good point. Like, if there's any friction there in the experience, if something's too hard, we find this, as you know, even with voters, you know, younger voters in particular, if they can't find exactly how to vote early or where to vote, we may lose them. Same thing with volunteers. So how do we build a user experience that is as good as people are experiencing in the private sector? Or is that not realistic because we go cycle to cycle? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. No, I think, I think you're talking to a radical here, right? So the correct answer and the answer that's, you know, the very sort of serious answer would be, well, the shorter runways of campaigns make it harder to invest in apps. It's hard to get everybody onboarded to them. Instead, we should try and stick to things that are the lowest lift and they're the most scalable. And that's the safe answer. And that's the correct answer for this exact moment we're in. We don't exactly have a lot of time at the moment to be sort of building new user experiences from whole cloth. But my actual answer and my actual belief is we need to be thinking about a democratic-wide platform, not just sort of, oh, we're going to chase voters here, we're going to chase voters here, let's be here, let's be... We're still always going to have to do that. What I would love to see is an app where if you launch a campaign and you're down ballot, you let the app maker know and they make you a section. Your supporters can sign up. They get direct updates and push alerts from you with what you need and what your requests are and what they can do today immediately to help you out. It gives them information about when you're going to be on TV. When are you in the print? Here are five articles to read today. Click here to share. Actually, can you record a video and tell us about why you're excited to vote for this candidate? We may share it or use it in a digital ad. It's We need a place where we can give them information, voters, supporters, volunteers, and a place where they can give us information about what's happening in their communities, issues that are most important to them. We need a place to situate conversations between campaigns and candidates, the grassroots supporters, and then the people we onboard into that process. But that's a longer-term strategy. But that that has to be, it seems to me, not just the aspiration, but the necessity before too long here that we... It's desperately needed. Right. It's desperately needed. All right. Last question for you. Uh, are you a fan of the buzz cut in the beard? <laughs> um, I feel partly responsible for the beard because I helped get uh, hashtag beard edge edge trending. We did a fundraising challenge <laughs> around the possibility of the beard. Right. So I feel partly responsible for it. I love the beard. I think the beard's fantastic. Um, the shaved head, I'm a little, you know. <laughs> he can pull it off. I'm where you are. I'm 10 on the beard. I'm, I'm, I'm not 10 on the shaved head. but <laughs> I'm not a 10 on the shaved head. But as somebody who, I'm living in South Bend. Everything, um, I'm still living here. So the campaign ended and my lease is not up. And so um, I'm a little bit in a situation where uh, it's like I moved to a new city to be with a boy. And then the boy and I broke up and now I just live in his hometown. So I just like, <laughs> live in South Bend at the moment. And uh, everything's closed. Right. So the necessity of Pete having to, like, home shave his head is 100% real. I'm almost to that point. Not quite. Super rational, yeah. Well, listen, Stefan, thank you for your time uh, and your wisdom today. Uh, I'm very interested, as I'm sure listeners will be, to follow your journey and know that you'll continue to make your mark and help us win more elections and and build a more just and progressive world. So thank you for all you've done and and hopefully all that you're going to do. 
thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. A great conversation with Stefan. I certainly learned a lot. I hope uh, all of you did as well. And, you know, I'll, I'll have a very short close. I, I hope you take to heart what he said about your own approach to this election and what you can do now, what you need to prepare for in the fall. And I hope those who are working on campaigns from Joe Biden's down to the local level uh, really take to heart some of Stefan's observations and lessons about the way we need to approach uh, social media uh, and the digital space more broadly. I was particularly struck by his view that we are missing a huge opportunity on YouTube. So I hope that uh, folks who listen to this may look at their own budgets and time and invest a little bit more there. So really a great conversation. And I'm eager to see Stefan and some of the folks uh, like him, you know, follow their trajectory, both in this election and future trajectories, because they're the future. They understand, uh, to use the old saying in hockey, they understand where the puck's going, not where it's been. And I think we can learn a lot from him and his colleagues. So uh, thanks, everybody, and look forward to being back with you next week on Campaign HQ.